Father, how good it is to be able to sing your praises, to be able to sing together, one in Christ, and pray, and just worship you. And Father, we thank you so very much that we don't just sing our praises to you, but we also get to sit and listen to your word read to us and preached to us, something we don't want, to, don't want to take for granted. And Father, as we hear your word read and preached now, prepare our hearts. Op- open our hearts to receive your word and allow it to change us inside and out. May your Holy Spirit move and fill our hearts and our minds with the knowledge of our great God. We love you and want to listen to you now. Amen. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong, He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, All the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah 
who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Amen. Um, but lots of us, lots of us can't read that story, right? Um, uh, read that story in Acts 3 without that old song going through your heads. Anyone know what I mean? You know, yeah, there's a few people, quite a few of us remember the one, Peter and John went to pray, they met a lame man on the way, he held out his palms and he asked them for arms, and this is what Peter did say, silver and gold have I none, come on, but such as I have give I thee, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, and he went walking and leaping and praising God, walking and leaping and praising God, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Beautiful. Hey, well done. <laughs> um, I've had that in my head. This, this, Doing this, look, this is just a release for me because I've had that in my head all week. So hopefully it's not there anymore. Um, but for the original readers of this um, part of Acts, of Acts 3, for the original readers, there was actually a different old song that would have been ringing in their ears as they heard about this amazing restoration of this guy. Uh, 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had written about the coming last days when God would return and save his people. And in chapter 35, he paints this really stunning picture of the restoration and rejoicing of all creation. So I'm going to read a chunk of it because uh, it's just so wonderful. From Isaiah 35, verse 5, it should be on the screen. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool and thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. There's another song that might be <laughs> coming to your mind as you, but we won't go there. So there's actually a lot more going on in this chapter in Acts 3 than just the healing of one man. As good as that is, that's wonderful. But the miracles in the New Testament, they're not just kind of 
isolated incidents. They're not just acts of raw power. They're not ends in themselves. Um, Next week, what we're going to see is this healing gets called a sign. Um, It gets called a sign. It's one of the many, last week we read about the many signs and wonders the apostles were performing. This is one of them. And the thing about signs is they point to something greater than themselves. They point away from themselves to a greater reality. And look, it's no surprise where this sign points. It's the same place that everything points in in the Bible, and we've been seeing this in the first chapters of Acts already. This sign points us to the one who Acts is all about, the one who the Holy Spirit opens our blind eyes to see. It points us to Jesus. But what we're going to see in this chapter is that what this sign shows us about Jesus is just so much bigger than maybe what we've thought before. Uh, The Apostle Peter uses this sign to show us just how massive, how all-encompassing, how unstoppable Jesus is and the restoration that he brings really is. So let's dive in. Uh, to this wonderful account in Acts 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Uh, So we read last week that the apostles were spending a lot of time at the temple, uh, I think so that they can tell people about Jesus. This is where people are gathering. And they get another really major chance to do that right now in this this chapter. So they walk through this huge... The gate is probably one... um, They think it's one of the gates that was huge and impressive, like towering, bronze-covered gates called Beautiful. Um, But as they kind of walk up to this amazing, beautiful, impressive gate, something not so very beautiful (laughs) takes their eye, right? There's this contrast between this beautiful gate and... Well, there's a lame beggar, we're told, lame since birth, which, again, next chapter we'll find out he's, that's over 40 years. Um, so he's been, he's been lame for over 40 years. He does have some friends who carry him each day to this gate, presumably because it's a good place to ask for money because there's people walking past him all day. So get the picture. Peter and John are heading into the temple, and this guy asks them the same question he asks everyone else. Have you got a dollar? And, but Peter and John do something so unusual. Um, you, you probably know this. Most people avoid eye contact uh, when they're asked for money. Uh, if you've been well, sort of walking through the city, um, uh, it's, that's the kind of common thing to do. And even if you do give some money, even then you, you, uh, you're sort of, most people will avoid eye contact because you don't really want to get drawn in. There's something about eye contact that it's very humanising, right? Um, like it connects you to another person. It, and in this kind of setting, it actually makes you kind of... It draws you into their, their situation, their suffering. It, in a way, it sort of makes you vulnerable to their suffering. But something unusual happens here. This guy asks them for money, and it's, it's a little detail, but I think quite significant. They don't keep their eyes down. See that in verse 4? They look at him, they not, not just sort of glance at him once, but they look straight at him, sort of fix their gaze on him. And not only that, they talk to him. They say to him, look at us. 
And I imagine he's a bit perplexed at that point. He's, what's going on with these guys? He looks up at them in verse 5. He, he, he's expecting to get something from them. And then Peter says his famous line in verse 6, Silver and gold have I none. Silver and gold I do not have. And you can imagine this guy at that point thinking, Ah, oh, really? What a letdown. I mean, I'm not interested in chatting. <laughs> um, why, why sort of tell me to look at you? Why get my hopes up? If you don't have what I want, well, we find out the reason is because they actually have something far better. Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. So Peter, we're told, he puts his hand, he stretches out his hand to this man. And I've been trying to think all week, what was going through his, the beggar's mind at that point, so Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. He puts his hand out. I kind of half expect him just to bat Peter's hand away. Don't come at me with your false hopes. I'm lame. I've been lame for 40 years. Look at my legs. Uh, the muscles completely, I don't have any muscles. <laughs> They're completely wasted away. My feet are twisted. My ankles don't work. What I need is money so that I can survive and, and eat something. And if so, if you, know, if you don't have any cash, please just move on. That's kind of what I, on one level, you'd sort of expect him to do. But that's not what happens. And it struck me this week, as Peter stretches down his hands, what a huge act of faith it was for the beggar to take Peter's hand in his own. I wonder whether it was simply the name of Jesus of Nazareth that lit something in his heart. Um, if he'd been begging there every day at the temple court, he must have heard about Jesus and his crucifixion. Um, that happened just you know weeks earlier. I reckon it's probable that he even saw Jesus walking around, around the temple courts. It's possible that he even heard Peter's own testimony about Jesus on the day of Pentecost. Remember that? We looked at it a few weeks ago. And maybe he heard that rushing wind and saw those tongues of fire. And here is that same Peter from that day looking at him stretching out his hand to him and saying to him, in the name, under the authority, with the power of the risen Lord Jesus, walk. And so the, the, this beggar, he doesn't just bat his hand away. He reaches up and takes Peter's hand. And in faith, he grasps it. And in this act, uh, uh, like mind-boggling act of recreation, those, that, those l wasted legs... Suddenly the muscles grow firm and strong and thick. Uh, the feet straighten and the ankles are, are strengthened. He's knit back together in a, and in a moment. He doesn't go through five years of physio to be able to walk. It's, it's a moment. He's put back to how he was always meant to be. And for the first time, in his, first time in his life, so he's been lame since birth, first time in, he's watched everyone else walk past him his whole life, and the first time in his life, takes Peter's hand and sort of gingerly gets up and starts sort of testing things out. 
And he starts to walk a bit more confidently, and then he thinks, oh, maybe I could try a little jump. <laughs> and, and, and from then on, it's all on, right? Like, it, it's, he's it, like, try and stop me jumping. So he, you get the, he's leaping about, praising God because of this amazing thing that happens. And in verse 10, everyone sees this guy and they know him. They know him, right? They know him as the lame beggar who's been there his whole life at, at the beautiful gates. And they can't deny that something utterly miraculous, utterly incredible, utterly unheard of has happened here. So, it, I mean, this, sometimes I hear about faith healers at work and I just think there's a kind the, uh, the, the, this is not a, a charlatan faith healer sort of claiming something that has a short-term placebo effect, but later on gets worse again. See what's going on here? This is public, undeniable. No one could deny it. No one would have any scepticism about this. It's instant. It doesn't take a long, long period of time to happen. It's instant and permanent healing of this man they all knew. And there wasn't any elaborate ceremony or ritual prayers or anything like that. It's just one word, walk, in the name of one man, Jesus of Nazareth. And everyone is filled with wonder and amazement. It's striking, I think, as you read this, how similar this healing is to Jesus' own miracles. Uh, so often in the Gospels, we're told that Jesus looked at people. It's one of those little details that um, you can sort of skip over, but once you see it, you see it everywhere. It's one of the striking features of Jesus' character is that he looked at people, and he looked at the people that everyone else looked away from. Um, he looked at people. Uh, he dignified them and went into their world, but he didn't just enter their world, he transformed it. He healed in this, this same kind of undeniable public way with just a word, didn't take lo lots of ceremony or elaborate things, just a word, and people are left utterly amazed. But it's no accident that, that this miracle in Acts 3, there, there are so many parallels with Jesus' own miracles, and I think that's no accident because what we're going to find out is that this actually is another one of Jesus' miracles. And that's really one of the main points of this chapter, actually. This, this actually is one of Jesus' miracles. Um, it's not Peter who has done this because he's some impressive healer. The risen and reigning King Jesus is himself working through his apostle to make this lame man leap. That's why Peter says later on, you might have picked that up, it has nothing to do with me. It's not about my power or my godliness, down in verse 16. It's by faith in the name of Jesus that this man whom you see and know was made strong. It's Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. So uh, this lame man, he's incredibly healed by Jesus, by the risen and reigning Lord who has ascended to the right hand and he's in the, box, the, the coach's box seat directing things as we've been looking at. 
But no, he doesn't just heal this guy. There's something else going on. There's something about a spiritual outcast being brought in, not just uh, uh, someone who's lame being healed. It's a subtle but I think really important point. Uh, so you notice where this guy's begging. He's begging at the gates, but he's, he's, he's outside the temple, right? He's not, he's not in there. Um, and I think Luke actually makes a really important, uh, he makes a point of showing us in verse 8 that the first thing this, this guy does after he's healed is to go bouncing into the temple courts along with Peter and John as they proclaim Jesus, clinging on to them. Uh, I don't know how he's bouncing and clinging to them, but it's happening somehow, maybe one to the other. It's a little sign of something deep and that we'll actually see more as the weeks go on. Uh, this man who was excluded under the temple system of the time is now made whole, not just physically, but there's a, there's a deeper spiritual wholeness and restoration going on here. And that happened outside the temple. Or maybe better, actually, it's, this restoration happens through the true temple, the, the one who tabernacled among us. Uh, see, there's this growing conflict in these chapters that we'll see as we go on uh, between Jesus' apostles and the Jerusalem temple and its leaders. Uh, and that conflict is sort of fueled by this reality. We've already mentioned it before, that Jesus, the, the, the temple always pointed towards him. He is the reality that it was always pointing towards. And by his spirit, um, that same temple is now fulfilled in Jesus and his people. And that kind of tension leads to a lot of conflict, which we're going to see played out in coming chapters. Um, we'll see more next week uh, about that. Um, so, but what, my, my, what I'm trying to say here is that that spiritual outcast is brought in. It's not just a physical healing. Uh, he's restored to God through Jesus, the, the true and ultimate temple. Uh, and that underlying spiritual reality, which we kind of glimpse in those verses, it actually takes centre stage as Peter gets up to explain what's happened and give his speech uh, to this crowd. It's the same pattern as the day of Pentecost. Remember that? A great miracle happens... But Peter doesn't talk about the miracle. <laughs> he, he focuses on the one the sign points to. He goes to Jesus. It's Jesus who's done this. And the main point seems to be that this is another sign that Jesus really is who he says he is. So just like at Pentecost, um, he, he says that's really important. So this has happened to show you that Jesus really is who he says he is. And that's really important for these guys he's talking to. Because they're, remember, it's the same as what happened at Pentecost. They're, this is the group that killed Jesus, that put him to death. And he really lays it on. Look at down at verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed, what a, what a line this is, what a, you killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. We 
the apostles, Peter's saying, we are witnesses of this. We've seen it, we've touched it, we've heard it. We are witnesses that this really happened. We saw last week uh, that even though that's the message to the original hearers, it still applies to us too. But do you see what Peter's saying? He's saying this amazing thing that happens, the point isn't, the primary point isn't just so that you will be amazed. That's actually not the primary point of what's going on here. This is all pointing to Jesus. It's a demonstration that he really is the servant of Yahweh. He really is the holy and righteous one. He really is the author of life. And down in verse 8, he really, verse 18, he really is the one through whom God fulfills all his promises, the Messiah who would suffer for his people. And so the application of this, where this hits the ground for this guy, for them and for us, is not just be amazed. It's also not ask God to heal you in the same way. Although we're invited and welcome to do that, But that's not actually the main point of what's going on here. The purpose of this, the application of this for the crowd and for us that Peter really zones in on is actually a spiritual one. This physical restoration points us to our great need for a spiritual restoration. That's why in verse 19, Peter calls the crowd to repent. To repent. And turn to God. Recognize your sin. Stop justifying it. Don't hide it away. Don't deny it. Open yourself up to God. He sees it anyway. Don't try and fool him. Acknowledge it. Turn from your sin and turn to God. And what a beautiful promise comes next. Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So imagine you have, like, each of us has a big whiteboard sort of behind us that travels around. And on that whiteboard is written every single sin you've ever done, you know. Um, Black as black, utterly horrifying shameful, a heavy weight. Uh, it can be hard to clean whiteboards. I don't know if you've experienced it. Uh, my friends in the Goolwood group will know this. I spent ages the other week trying to clean off a whiteboard. Um, I kept using different sprays, and none, none of them worked. It was still there. There's still the shadow of what I'd written. And it wouldn't get clean until I found just the right thing. If you want to know, it's cream cleanser. It does a great job. Works beautifully. You see what... Peter's saying here, though, the blood of Jesus Christ is far more effective even than cream cleanser. (laughs) One wipe. And all of your sins are utterly wiped away. Not even the shadow of them remaining on the whiteboard. One wipe. And your sins are gone, completely and forever. It's no wonder that Peter says times of refreshing will come to those who truly repent. Real, 
there's different ways of repentance. I think we mentioned this a little bit last week. That there's some repentance that just goes on the surface and it's just sort of a bit more shallow. It's just being sorry for the, the implications of what you've done or being sorry that you've offended someone. It doesn't really go right to the heart. But real gospel repentance that doesn't shy away, that doesn't justify, it actually brings deep soul-quenching refreshment because what we are turning from is so ugly and so destructive and the one we turn to is so beautiful and so life-giving so i just want to pause at this point and say it might be that you're feeling a bit stale today maybe a bit weary in your christian life and you could do with some refreshing. There might be many reasons for that. I'm not saying this is the only reason for that. There's, there could be a, a whole range of different things to, uh, to address. But it might well be that one of those reasons is that there are sins in your life that you're kind of holding on to. Uh, that you haven't actually repented of. Or maybe you did once, but you've sort of given up on of repenting of brothers and sisters jesus wants to bring times of he wants to bring refreshing to your soul today now he wants to bring times he wants to pour out that refreshment on you and as long as you're holding on to your pride or your lust or your resentment or your selfish ambition as long as you're kind of looking to those things to fill you and to fill that hole in your heart, to refresh your soul, it's kind of like what one of the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah, talks about. He has this image in chapter 2 of people frantically digging broken and dry wells when all the time standing right next to them is the spring of living water. You get that, like they're, kind of, they're digging for dry wells, they're looking for water, looking for water, and right next to them, there it is a spring of living water freely given. That's what, that's what we're like, isn't it? That's what we're doing when we look for our refreshment, our ultimate deep refreshment in anything other than the true source of living water, our Lord Jesus, other than him. That's what we're doing. We're digging broken wells that can't hold water, that don't satisfy that actually just make us more and more thirsty, right? That's what our, our, our sins we hold on to do. They just they make us more thirsty. So perhaps for you, you need to hear that today. Stop digging in the desert. Repent and turn to the spring of living water so that your sins, well, you, you can be reminded on that great truth that in Christ they are wiped away so that you can receive times of refreshing from our Lord. So maybe that's, maybe that's all you need to hear today. But there is more in this passage that I'm going to sort of briefly touch on before we wrap up. Uh, Peter has one more truth to impress, impress on us about Jesus. It's not just that he healed the lame man and brought him in. It's not just that through Jesus people can repent and have their past cleansed and their present refreshed. 
This, this sign, this healing, actually points us forward to a future so bright that it actually, makes, it actually makes our repentance now even more of a joy if we can do it in the light of this great future. Verse 19, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who he has appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him. That's what happened in chapter 1. Heaven received him. Heaven must receive him until the time comes For what? For God to restore everything. As he promised long ago through his holy prophets, through Isaiah 35. And he goes on to talk about those prophets. Uh, We won't look at it in detail, but we had it read out earlier. In the rest of this speech, he goes on to talk about Moses and Samuel and Abraham. And his point is that what has happened with Jesus is so massive that every hope, every promise, every longing is fulfilled in him. Uh, He's the prophet like Moses who we have to listen to if we want to know God. He's the eternal king promised to David through Samuel. He's the one who fulfills the promise of Abraham, of God's blessing to all peoples of the earth. And back in verse 21, he's the one who will return. And when he does, God will restore not just one man's legs, but the whole world, the whole creation. Uh, It's what John speaks about at the end of Revelation, a new creation where God will wipe away every tear, where there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, and where Jesus will make all things new. Um, this, this, This miracle that Jesus performed through his apostles, it's like a bright neon sign saying, that future is coming. It really is. Be assured of it. Uh, One writer put it like this. uh, We can think of miracles as like a suspension of the natural order. So it's sort of like God breaking the laws of nature. We we can often think of miracles like that. But that's not actually at all what's going on in biblical miracles. Uh, Biblical miracles, they point us towards the coming new creation. And because of that, they're not suspensions of the natural order. They're restorations of the natural order. They're restoring things to the way things are meant to be. And one day will be. Um, Listen to Tim Keller on this. I've got a quote up there, which I think is just so helpful. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also wonderful foretastes of what he is going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. The world, the world you want, the world that is not the world we live in, that world is coming through Jesus, when he returns. So where I want to finish up is really just to settle in that truth, this world that we all want and that Jesus has promised to bring in. This miracle points us to him, the author of life. It points us to the spiritual need we have for refreshing that only comes through repentance, but it also points forward to that hope. Uh, Our world is so broken 
on so many levels. There is such suffering and wickedness and confusion and complexity. I don't know about you, but it can just feel overwhelming, right? Um, on, you can feel that on the big scale about everything that goes on. But here's what this, this chapter proclaims to us. This neon sign sort of blares out at us from Acts 3. The resurrection of Jesus and miracles like this proclaim to us that that brokenness is not the last word and that there is a better world coming. That is so wonderful. It's wonderful when we think about the big problems of our world, but it's also wonderful when we think about ourselves personally. Um, So many of us, walking and leaping and jumping around is like, you know, a distant memory, right? So many of us have failing bodies. And actually all of us have bodies that will fail eventually, one way or the other. Uh, For many of us, our leaping and jumping days are over. Even if they're not, though, in a few short years, 5, 10, 50, I mean, in the big scheme of things, that's a a few short years, uh, those days will be over for you. Or will they? See, what this miracle so powerfully points us to is that for all those who do repent, and, and only those who do repent, we do need to hear that, but for all those who do repent, who do listen to Jesus, who turn to God, your Lord will not only pour out his refreshment on you spiritually now, but on that day when he returns, will look you in the eyes and take your hand and lift you up into a renewed creation where you will walk and leap and praise him overwhelmed at his power and his grace and his love. That certain hope, that is what will enable you to persevere through suffering now. Much of which is intense. You need assurance. And that's what this chapter gives us. The risen Lord has done this miracle so that you might have assurance that this day is certain and is coming. It's what will inspire us to fight against suffering now. Also, knowing that that's God's heart for his world. It's what will make your repentance a joy because when you repent, you're actually turning to, to reality. Um, you're turning to the one you were made for and the only one who can satisfy and the one who will satisfy you eternally and forever. So friends, repent and be refreshed. Be restored now and for eternity.